This week's podcast brought to you by Hunters and Gatherers. This weekend, I was at a UConn game, and I was leaving the XL Center in Hartford, and four teenage girls came over with sweatshirts that said, basketball is my boyfriend and they wanted to get a picture and I got to talking with them and their and their dads and they were from Wyoming and they were out here for the weekend for a dads and daughters trip they went to the Yukon game on Saturday they were going to go to the Louisville game on Monday going to New York City and the day in between and they were all eighth graders who played basketball and I thought what an amazing Christmas present which is what it was for them to come out to to have this trip a dads and daughters trip. I just love that idea, especially for girls that age. And I think more dads should go on dads and daughters trips. Well, if they have a daughter. I agree with you. Oh, you're talking about me, aren't you? (laughs) It's time to take her on one. There's no pain, no gain, and we found that to be fact. The road might twist and turn a bit, but we all arrive intact. Mr. Mom and Mrs. Dad having each other's back. Day by day, just to keep it sane. Who's the ball and who's the chain? It's hard to tell right here on Happiness Lane. I've seen very little of the Winter Olympics so far. But what I have seen is probably my favorite thing, and that is watching the on-camera open of figure skating, because I get to see Terry Gannon, who I used to work with on the WNBA, and uh, Johnny Weir and Tara Lipinski. And the beauty of it is you see Johnny and Tara, and they're both in completely sequenced outfits, and they're either holding microphones that have bling on them, or their headset has bling. And then Terry is in a normal suit and a normal tie and a non-blinged microphone and a non-blinged headset and it's uh but the three of them are perfect together but in in figure skating that sartorial sobriety makes him stand out as kind of the flamboyant extrovert yes that sartorial sobriety (laughs) i'm not suggesting that he's not sober non-sartorial. Right, right. Well, my my favorite Winter Olympic story of all time happened in the summer of a non-Olympic year. And as I said, Terry used to call WNBA games. He was my play-by-play guy for, for a long time. And I loved working with Terry. And Terry was a starting, the starting shooting guard on the 1983 NC State men's basketball team that won the national championship under Jim Valvano, the you know, complete underdog, Cinderella story. There was a great 30 for 30 on their team that Terry was a big part of. But um, he was a really good basketball player and called NBA games, WNBA games, men's college games for a long time for ESPN. He's now solely with NBC and the Golf Channel. But we were working the WNBA finals one year, and I don't remember how many years ago this was, but Donna Orinder at the time was the president of the WNBA, and we were out to dinner. The ESPN folks were out to dinner with the people from the WNBA, and somehow the 1983 men's NC State National Championship team came up, and Donna Orinder said to Terry, you played basketball? I thought you were a figure skater. <laughs> So much like I had a chance to meet 
James Brown earlier this year, and everyone assumes that he was a football player because he has worked on football for so long. And indeed, he was a basketball player at Harvard, much like people assume Ahmad Rashad was a basketball player because for years he did inside stuff and other stuff for the NBA when indeed he was a professional football player. But nothing can quite trump Donna Orender saying to Terry Gannon, I thought you were a figure skater. <laughs> so there's some sartorial sobriety for you. Well, I haven't watched a ton of the Winter Olympics either, um, though I love the Winter Olympics and I covered many Winter Olympics. Uh, I'll talk about that in a minute. But I did see the other night, I don't remember if it was the morning here and the night there, I think it was the morning here, Sunday morning, the uh, men's luge finals. And but by the way, when I think of luge, I just think of covering the Chicago Bulls in Paris in, in 1998. The Bulls were on tour in Paris. I went there. It was like the Beatles abroad. The great Bulls team still together. Jordan was asked what he looked forward to while he was in Paris, and he said visiting the Luge. The Luge. Yeah, which I, I understand. <laughs> it's like Brett Favre of era with right. uh, the Louvre right. of era. I find myself having difficulty saying anything. So I'm watching the men's Luge final, and the announcer says of Felix Locke, I think is his last name. He is the golden boy of World Luge. First of all, a, a phrase that I love, the golden boy of World Luge. It's one of the beauties of the Winter Olympics is there is a golden boy of this or a, a golden girl of that that we only think about every four years. Did he win the gold? He's, I think, a three-time Olympic gold medalist. Uh, okay. uh, he has three Olympic medals, but he did not even he did not medal this time. But before we found this out, the announcer said, he's the golden boy of World Luge. And he was on a loose track. His father was a coach. He was on a loose track when he was in a stroller. And all I could think of was, hey, uh, Larry or whatever Felix's dad's name is, uh, where did you put Felix? Oh, he's in, the, he's in a stroller <laughs> at the uh, top of the, the loose track. That's something that you would do, but hopefully other dads would, uh, would not. <laughs> you know, I, I covered the Bassmaster Classic a few years ago in Alabama, and uh, the World Series, the Super Bowl of, of bass fishing, as they say. There are always these equivalents in more obscure sports that they try to feed the general public a conversion table. So the Bassmaster Classic is the Super Bowl of bass fishing. And a guy I spent the day in the boat with, Kevin Van Dam, the greatest bass fisherman of our time, was repeatedly described as the Michael Jordan of bass fishing. How many years ago was this? Like, has that changed? Now do people, would people call someone the LeBron James of something? Or is it still, I think Michael Jordan is still the standard. I think it, I think he for is. For description, yeah. yeah. yeah for I think Le- Le- LeBron James is now the Michael Jordan of basketball. Right, right. <laughs> but it got me wondering, if you were to be described as the Michael Jordan of something, other than basketball, of course. I was going to say, of course it would be basketball. Yes. What would it be? The, the Michael Jordan of wifing. <laughs> I feel like I'm. <laughs> no, I'm people, not sure I would people, go that far. I but. think if people have listened to this podcast enough and have an idea of the type of husband you are, they would say that I am the Michael Jordan of wifing. Can we? Can that be a verb? Of what? What would wifing be? What is that in terms of parts of speech? I don't know, but that would make me the LeBron James of husbanding. <laughs> I'm guessing. <laughs> But, Wait, uh, what would you be uh, of what would you be the Michael Jordan of? Well, I haven't given this a great deal of thought, but I think I would be the Michael Jordan of of t-shirt folding. You are a good t-shirt folder. No, but you don't say Michael you wouldn't say of Michael Jordan 
you are a good basketball player. No, I am. I think I'm the best in my field at that at folding t-shirts. I think we should. I think we should continue. I think you should continue to practice and perfect that that art form of t-shirt folding. We'll agree to disagree as we usually do. But I, I covered the Winter Olympics the first time, 1992. I was 25 years old. It was in Albertville, France, in the French Alps. The first time I'd ever been to Europe, and I was wide-eyed and at everything from. So the size of some of the paper money, this was before the euro, and some of the folding money was like you had to fold a map. And I've come away from each of these Winter Olympics with one little postcard memory. 92 in Albertville, I was in the French Alps. My brother and his fiance or girlfriend, I can't remember the time, flew in to crash on my floor in the small ski chalet in Maribel, France. I was covering, exclusively covering Olympic hockey. Which sibling, and is this person now their wife? <laughs> oh dear. Of course it's not his wife, Jim, Jim because Jim. Okay. His, his wife worked for United Airlines and they could fly for free, and uh, which is the only we- reason they would have come over and stay for free. So the Olympics were free. But I remember being at the hockey venue. They had given out bottles of Evian water, French bottled water. And there was a controversial call or a controversial goal that was allowed or disallowed, and fans rained Evian bottles down onto the ice. And the Olympic mascot was like a star skating around, a little puffy sort of stuffed animal-looking star. And after the, the rain of Evian bottles, I remember being back in the tunnel under the, you know, in the bowels of the stadium, in the bowels of the arena, and the top point of the star was his head. He had, this, he had the top point of the star off, and he was chain-smoking Galois cigarettes while muttering in French about being beaned, if that's the right word, uh, by an Evian bottle. You're free to the react. star was smoking. No, I, I just, I'm, I'm enjoying that visual. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know how it's like if you're backstage at uh, Disney World or something, and you saw, not that you ever would, you don't see that at Disney World, but if you saw Mickey with his head off, chain smoking, it would, it would, it would, uh, scar would be you for life. Interesting. It, now, Jim, was Jim the one who also came to the Atlanta Summer Olympics and drank all of Jim the... and John, both of them, they, they crashed on my floor at the Atlanta Olympics in which you participated, and uh, drained my mini bar. Of and all left. of the little uh, bottles of liquor? Like, what did that cost you? Do you have any memory oh, it of was, that? It was in the four figures, easily. I mean, the macadamia <laughs> nuts alone were like right. $75. Uh, 94 was Lillehammer, Norway. And I, I was assigned to meet Tanya Harding at the airport in Oslo. So I went down to Oslo, myself and about 300 other journalists, quote in quotation marks, to await the arrival of Tanya Harding. We waited for hours, as Is I recall. This in the, right in the midst of the controversy? Yes, yes, yes. And, uh, oh boy, was it ever. And we were in some kind of holding pen, as I recall, and there for a couple of hours, as my memory serves. And as a result, we watched the people get off the plane, and we thought, I don't know what we thought, that Tanya Harding would get off the plane and make a statement at a podium, or that she would... You know, it would break into down into one-on-one sessions with uh, journalists and Tanya Harding, or what, but after several hours of the commute and the wait at the airport, we did see Tanya Harding get off the airplane with Connie Chung, who had <laughs> flown over from the U.S. with her to interview her on the airplane in an exclusive for CBS, who was, I think, the rights holders for the game at the time. So did you. Or NBC, whatever So the 300. We left. We, we just, we, we stood, nothing we, happened. We interviewed see, each other and went home. But, uh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Like, what are... What were you thinking? Like, what were the 300 and you thinking, thinking that she was going to come no, over of course and say not. something? I mean, 
You've heard me tell this story. Back in 1995, when our, our team won the national championship, my college team, and the team got to go to the White House to meet President Clinton, I didn't get to go. So a few months later, I get I got to go for a jog with him in a park not, not far from downtown D.C. So I was jogging with him. There's about five of us jogging. And at one point, there's a bank of photographers we went back past and they took a picture. And then as we're jogging, we got to an area where there was 30 reporters standing there and they start shouting questions at President Clinton. He's on a jog. They start shouting questions at him about all kinds of serious issues. He keeps going and we just get out of earshot and he looks over at us and says, I never answer their questions. Well, of course, you're on a jog. What were they like, like, like you at the at the Olympics at the airport waiting for waiting for Tanya Harding? What were you thinking that just in case she says something, I have to be there? Well, first of all, may I point out the difference in circumstance of shouting questions to the most powerful man on earth, the president of the United States, and shouting questions at Tanya Harding. Right. Well, so at least they will give them a pass. <laughs> I'm not no, going to give you a pass right. on this no, no. one. The only pass I get is I was doing what I was told to do. Of course, right. nothing was going to come from it. But if something did come from it, I would be there to witness whatever the fiasco would have been. And it would have been a fiasco. You know what? In hindsight, I should have stopped and gone over to the reporters and said, does anyone have a question for me? <laughs> You should have. And that's what Connie Sh- Chung should not, have not, done in your... Not at the White House, but, but at the Tanya Harding right, exactly. Oslo Airport. <laughs> and uh, later, at the figure skating final at, at Lillehammer, I was there on a ticket. I wasn't on press row. Ed Swift was covering the figure skating. I was in the stands on a ticket. And as you do when you're randomly seated in, in an arena, you kind of create this camaraderie with the people in your section or in your row or the people seated next to you if they're strangers at a kind of... a happy, uh, drunken event like that. And the gentleman uh, sitting next to me at one point uh, introduced himself as Al Harding, Tanya Harding's father. And he had been flown in to Norway by, I believe, the TV show Inside Edition, one of the tabloid TV shows. He <laughs> to heckle been, his own daughter? He, he Didn't they have been, a bad he, relationship? I, I, don't think they had a, I don't think you were flown in by Inside Edition if you, <laughs> if you have a great relationship, but I don't know the details. But he did mention during the course of that evening, he recommended a, a chain restaurant in the Portland, Oregon area. I wish I could remember the name of it. People in Portland, I'm sure, know of it or knew of it in 1994 that had... I mean, this was the principal attraction. It had 57 different compartments in its salad bar. And I would imagine one epic sneeze guard. <laughs> he he recommended that to you? Well, he, he to, to all of us in the section. Now, and he, I, I, would I really someone else, you know, was there any part of you that thought, all right, I could get a story out of asking him a few questions? Or did well, you recognize the, I mean, that it, it was, was inappropriate? No, no. He was, he was contractually obliged to speak to the... The people, I mean, everybody in that scene, including Tanya Harding, who flew over with Connie Chung, he was flown over by, he was he was giving his, uh, his ex, uh, there was no exclusive insider access as far as I could tell to give anyway. That was the night that Tanya Harding broke her skate or skate lace and oh, there was right, a big drama. Right, right. I don't remember, but anyway. 98, Nagano, Japan, I took a side trip to the industrial city of Kofu in the shadow of, at the base of Mount Fuji and Rick Riley and I, ate lunch with the then reigning world champion of competitive eating, a guy named Hirofumi Nakajima. I have a photograph to commemorate this rooftop soba noodle eating, and he just inhaled bowl after bowl of soba noodles with chopsticks like uh, 
So no. even was he training, or was this no, just no? No, this was just normally? an exhibition. This was, no, no, no. He he wouldn't have normally eaten on the rooftop. Maybe he would have, but I don't think he would have eaten as much as he ate as quickly as he ate. But we did note that when he passed down the sidewalk on the streets of Kofu, that the uh, proprietors of the all-you-can-eat buffet lunch buffets were ratchet hand cranking down the uh, the metal doors to to bar him from uh, from entering. And then in 2002 in Salt Lake City, I remember going to Park City, Utah. I don't was, remember it was ski jumping, I think, maybe, and being very cold, but also very hungry. And going to the concession stand and, and getting a hot chocolate and nachos and eating nachos, like ballpark nachos with the nacho cheese with a Z, while drinking hot chocolate and becoming so sick, as you might understand from that combination, that uh, just thinking about it now makes me uh, modest, mildly. Well, see, this is one of the differences between you and me, and I think perhaps some men and women in general, is I would know before consuming the nacho cheese and hot chocolate that it wasn't a good combination. You rolled the dice and said, perhaps this will work. <laughs> I didn't roll <laughs> the lost. dice. I, rolling the dice suggests I knew there was some element of risk in advance. Well, that's and- the thing is I would have known that that was a bad combination. No? Like, you didn't even consider mixing these two things might not be a good idea? <laughs> even now, I don't know the uh, what properties make it an unpleasant combination. Well, it I just know that I tried a, it. It doesn't was... even sound appealing taste-wise. You know, like nachos and beer, nachos and soda, you know, a donut and hot chocolate. But hot chocolate and nachos don't go together like peanut butter and jelly. Well, I can confirm that you're yes. right. <laughs> it wasn't pleasant, and they don't go well together. And it was a very long ride back to uh, Salt Lake City. For you City. and your seatmate, I'm yes. sure. But between us, I've been to, so I think that's four Winter Olympics. I've been to, I would guess, four Summer Olympics, something like that. So more Olympics than you have, anyway. But I came home with more than just a stomach ache from my Olympics. I, so I went to well, two. You, you came home with the gold medal. I came home with a Norwegian fisherman sweater. So I think it's a, <laughs> I'm glad you said sweater. And not, not even. Not, yes. <laughs> I came home with a Norwegian fisherman. And, uh, and, and that didn't last. And I met you years and later. And strangely, my Norwegian fisherman sweater was from Sydney. So I'm not really sure why I got that. You're not sure exactly what happened. Well, my Olympics were, I was at the Olympics 1996, the Olympics I actually participated in, Summer Olympics. I've never been to a Winter Olympics. And then uh, you and I went to the Olympics in Athens. That was 2004, which is easy for me to remember because I was pregnant with our our first at those Olympics. Do you remember at those Olympics that there was in the center of Athens, not far from where we're staying, in Syntagma Square, there was a uh, a lounge for the exclusive use of past Olympic athletes Olympians and their guests. I vaguely remember that. I remember going there. I don't remember how I even learned about it. But, Through some um, secret handshake, grapevine, Olympic grapevine thing. Right. And then you get there, and I don't even remember what the process was for them to make sure you were an Olympian in order to get in. Well, I'll tell you the process. The process was looking at me and deciding that I wasn't an Olympian, <laughs> and I could bugger <laughs> off. And uh, it was it was like an early version of facial recognition technology. They looked at your face, and if they recognized you, you right. were it. And right. in your case, they opened the door wide, rolled out the red carpet, and whisked you in. I was wearing the I'm with stupid t-shirt, so I got to go in with you. 
The but, I'm uh, with Olympian, the, the I'm with Olympian T-shirt. Yeah, and then when you walked in, it was like a Star Wars cantina of of Olympic athletes. I can't remember specifically now off the top of my head who was there, but everybody there was a well-known, recognizable Olympian of of a or past someone Olympics. wearing the T-shirt, or or um, a guy who looked like me who was standing next to them. My my two strongest memories from that Olympics. First was we were at Athens. Yes, at the Athens Games, we were watching Michael Phelps. And in a gold medal event, and it was one of it was either 50 meters, 100 meters. It was a short event, and it was the gold medal race at a, this outdoor pool. And it um, wasn't even in the Olympics; it was just an outdoor pool. <laughs> the YMCA. It was the gold medal race. Our daughter was born in December, so I was what you know five months pregnant at this point, maybe six months pregnant, and. I had to use the bathroom so bad, I had to tinkle so bad, that I got up and went down and I was in the bathroom when I heard the stadium erupt because Michael Phelps had won the gold, I think maybe had set the world record, and and I <laughs> was in the bathroom because I simply couldn't hold it any longer because I was pregnant and that can be difficult to do. And the other thing I remember is you and I going to watch, we were able to get whatever tickets Sports Illustrated wasn't using. So the one one of the events we were able to go see was synchronized trampoline. I don't know if you remember that it was synchroline. Synchronized trampoline. It was one of the test events. I doubt it's even in the the Olympics anymore. But I missed Michael Phelps' world record uh, swim, and I but I did see synchronized trampoline. The, so you, I had you, that going for me. You missed the Michael Jordan of swimming, Michael Phelps. <laughs> but you got to see the the Michael Jordan and the LeBron James of synchronized trampoline in unison. I mean, what's what could possibly be better than that? We also saw table tennis. Yes, we saw table tennis. We had to go. That was far out. We had to go on a train to go see that. But my, my brother recently, probably because... I like that you clarified that we had to go a long way on a train so that people didn't think you just thought it was far out yeah, right, right. and groovy and dynamite. <laughs> and, and every other Brady Bunch uh, way to describe something. My brother recently texted me and asked me if I went to the Olympic Village when I was in Atlanta and... In Atlanta, they put the basketball, men's and women's basketball teams, we're in a downtown hotel. We weren't staying at the Olympic Village because they needed extra security for the men, so they lumped the women in with it as well. My biggest regret from, from those games is I never went to the Olympic Village. I don't even know what it looked like, nothing. I never went and you know hung out with the other athletes, and that was a big mistake on my part. So. And my biggest regret was that I didn't spend those three weeks in a nine-star hotel <laughs> like you did, surrounded by security. Yeah, that's true. But it was it was a lonely existence I bet that, it was. That, that week at the Olympics. Had, had, but, had I been surrounded by security, I assure you, my two brothers would not have drained the minibar right. <laughs> of all of the liquor and macadamia nuts. I need to find out, to bring it full circle, I'm you know working a game every week now, calling games for ESPN. I need to find out if they would allow me to, to bedazzle my, my headset. Because, I mean, if Tara Lipinski and Johnny Weir can do it, why not me and Carol Lawson? We should, uh, I mean, Holly Rowe should, without question, have a bedazzled microphone. And I think I Carol think in Holly's I, mind, it is bedazzled. Uh, well, she makes it bedazzled because she the force of her personality. But We could bedazzle the microphone we're talking on right now. You, uh, you mentioned Ed Swift, ta- you know, that he was covering the, the figure skating. I think I know what you're going to say, but well, go on. Go on. <laughs> I, I got to hang out with Ed when I was uh, at the 2000 in four games in Athens and had a great time. And my favorite thing was, what, what, what did he get 
people were giving him a hard time because he described a gymnast as being shaped like a Snickers bar. Wasn't that what it was? <laughs> I don't know if it had to do with shape, but there were there were three or four food references in the piece, and we realized that Ed was starving as he was writing the uh, <laughs> but while he was writing des- on deadline. While he was describing it, and I was just thinking, like, it's not often that athletes intersect socially with sports writers or people who are covering them. You know, I and was, that holds true of our own house. Right. <laughs> well, I was hanging out with you and all of your friends. So I was, I was hanging out with, with all the people from Sports Illustrated. And it made me think too, back when I was playing, when I was playing and training with the Olympic team and, and your friend and now my friend, Alex Wolf, came out to write a piece on the team. And I, I remember coming down and meeting with him in a hotel lobby and, and talking to him for 45 or 50 minutes or something. I really liked Alex. And then when the piece came out, he described me as glacially slow, glacially slow. And uh, and that was before I, I really knew him. So when I became friends with him through you, I remember just saying to him, Alex, I admit I'm not the quickest person in the world, but how how much do glacial glaciers move you know, every hundred years or whatever, like glacially slow, that Alex, that could be a slight exaggeration. Alex, Alex is responsible for my writing for Sports Illustrated. He got me my job there, or at least got my foot in the door for me to get my job there. And uh, he wrote one of the great books on basketball, Big Game, Small World, Traveling the World, writing about basketball and other cultures. And uh, he's inscribed a book to you. It's on our bookshelf upstairs. And, and his inscription, and this book is now came out 17 years ago, is to Rebecca, if you read this at a glacially slow pace, it will be my fault. Yes. So, so uh, but Ed Swift, the aforementioned Ed Swift, another great Sports Illustrated writer, his thing at that Olympics, you may or may not remember, he had this great idea. His, his million dollar idea was to uh, a flat dog. The flat dog. He kept right. talking about the flat dog. It was a flattened hot dog that you could eat on sandwich bread or you could eat on a hamburger bun. And I kept trying to tell him, Ed, the flat dog exists. It's called baloney. <laughs> and he kept saying, no, but this is like a, a hot dog that's that's flat and circular. and Yes, never nothing ever yeah. came of the flat dog. No, because it already existed. Right. It's called Oscar Mayer baloney. Right. I had it on white bread with a square of American cheese and mayonnaise every day for the first 19 years of my life. Okay, so here's a question. Since you ate that every day for the first 19 years of your life. Also for the last 19 years of my <laughs> if life. If I don't buy bologna, if I asked you to go to the grocery store to get bologna, or if you needed to go to the grocery store to get bologna, would you know what kind of bologna to get? I would know what kind, and I would know exactly where it is. It's it's in the back far left of Stop and Shop by the bathroom. I know where the bathroom is, and I know where the Lunchables are, so I know the bologna is Lunchable adjacent. And you know that in the opposite corner... Also along the back wall is where the milk is. So this past Sunday, I was in Bristol, in studio, I didn't ask you where the milk was. No, I know you didn't. But you sent me a text and said, do we drink 2% milk or 1% milk? Now, Do we buy? Because I don't drink milk. You don't drink it. Fine. Do we buy? Which the question really is, do you buy? Because I do 99.9% of the grocery Ah, shopping. And yet there I was buying milk. Hold on. Okay. Fair enough. But we've been purchasing milk ever since our oldest was one years old. So you should know, what's that? One year. Yes. Thank you for the correction. Since she was one year old. You should know what kind of milk we get. We've been getting 2% milk forever. It's the one that has the green label on it. 
And some, you know, I, I posted this on Twitter. So some people were sending tweets in like, you know, should know the color of the cap. In your defense, the kind of milk we get, all of the different percentages have the same white color cap, but they do have different color writing. And we get the 2% milk with the green writing. It blew me away that you needed to ask that question. Because even though you don't drink milk, you help, like our, our littlest can't pour the milk on her, on her cereal when the bottle's full. Like you, you handle the milk bottle, what? At least once a day, we pour them milk for dinner, and you didn't know what milk was. I can't, I can't, but I can't even believe that. If I did know what kind of milk we buy, whether it's one percent or two percent or whole or skim or almond or the nine thousand other kinds of milk there are, why do they have to be so many kinds of milk? That's a that's an even better question. That's a great yes. question. Then I wouldn't be able to remember what Ed Swift said at the two thousand four right. Olympics or what how many how many compartments in this salad bar there were at Al Harding's favorite chain restaurant. You know what? That's that's completely true because those are the things I don't remember. I didn't remember exactly what Alex had written on the book to me until and I, you brought I it up. I haven't seen that inscription since he inscribed it you, seventeen years ago. You remember all of the things that wouldn't help us survive, and that that actually makes me think. What year was it? 2010, right? When we had the big storm here, or was that 2011? It was the the Halloween storm where we lost power for a week. It was a huge storm in New England. Anyway, at our house, we lost power for a week. Our, Our youngest was not even a year old. She was an infant. So we had to go and stay at my dad's. One of our neighbors, they had a generator, so they had stuff going on. Anyway, this brings me back to our discussion now. I remember thinking at the time, if there was some sort of a weird apocalypse or if we if things went back to hunter gatherer times if that people would select their spouses very differently <laughs> like you're a brilliant writer but if we had to hunt and gather for our food you would be no use to this family <laughs> So like all the people who live around us who work crunching numbers in the insurance industry like, or whatever. Crunching yeah, numbers. Like their history. But the, the the appealing ones are the guys who can hunt, who can fish, who can you know fish. who can go in the woods and, and know which I can nuts go in the woods. and berries you can eat and which nuts and berries you can't. Like Think about your brain right now, and, and thank God you were born when you were, and you can make a good living with with what you're good at. I mean, first of all, I've said this I've said this a million <laughs> times. Any of us who wears glasses, and and I've worn glasses since eighth grade, probably needed them since sixth grade, couldn't see the chalkboard for two years, would be at a severe disadvantage in hunting and gathering nuts and berries in the woods because they wouldn't be able to see them. <laughs> okay but there are there are people i'm sure who have glasses who are still good at those kind of hunter gatherer things who are hunters and fishers and you know <laughs> what you're saying is is survivalist girls don't make passes at men who gather nuts and berries in glasses <laughs> Oh, my poet, keep writing. <laughs> so, if, if a bear should attack us, I'll, I'll recite some poetry. Made up on the spot. <laughs> Don't worry, if a bear attacks us. Uh, it'll get you long before you see it. Um, well, I, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. And as we know, you're glacially slow. Right. <laughs> so I think I would survive that. 
And I take some perverse pride in knowing that I would survive the bear attack over you. <laughs> and I don't know why I thought of this when the whole milk thing happened but it the did. whole milk thing didn't happen i oh. texted you what kind you didn't reply as as is your I habit was working. and so i so i i called our 13 year old daughter she's not 15 she's 13 you meant called by yelled her name since she doesn't have a cell phone no i called our house she answered oh and you I were out her, at the grocery store i was in the, the grocery text. store when i sent the text oh, and okay. asked her what kind of milk do we drink and she said two percent so i bought two percent okay well well done there Actually, this isn't related, but it did happen the other day. I was in bed, just about to fall asleep after a long day of hunting and gathering. <laughs> and I like went to roll over. And in the second I was rolling over, you took the pillow from under my head and, and pulled it over for you to use leaving me no pillow. I mean, we have... The like, pillow was in the DMZ. It was, yes, it was in the DMZ, but I was still using it. And so... As I'm rolling over, I lose my pillow. And I said to you, did you really just pull the pillow out from under my head? And you acted as if, oh, wait, I didn't realize you were using the pillow, but I, I think you did. But let's let Was not, I awake when that happened? You were. But that, that, that gets me to this story, which could be one of my favorites of just describing exactly how you operate. I was pregnant, I believe, with our oldest, but it could have been with any of our children. Very pregnant. And I don't know if this happens to all women when they're pregnant, but I know it happens to some, is that because of whatever craziness is going on in your body, you might snore. So I was pregnant and I was snoring and probably snoring loudly. And your no, response... Not, not probably. <laughs> fine. Your response one night wasn't to like tap me on the shoulder and say, you know, you're snoring, I can't sleep, roll over, whatever. Your response was... <laughs> I know exactly. ...was to... Pinch my nose closed so I couldn't breathe. I remember waking up because you pinched my nose. And I said to you, what was that? And you said, you're snoring. Remember, I'm very, very pregnant. My body is housing this child of ours. And I said, why didn't you just wake me up and tell me? And you said, well, that's what I used to do to my brother when we shared a room and he would snore. That's what okay. we did to each other. This is the difference. You're, you're. The difference is he was a small child and was probably at some real risk. Yeah, the difference was he wasn't like. First of all, it's hard enough to get a good night's sleep when you're super pregnant and uncomfortable. But there is a better way. You're right. It is hard <laughs> enough to get a good night's sleep when you're super pregnant and uncomfortable. <laughs> That's why I was trying to pinch your nose so I could get some sleep. But I would hope that no other man, that not, not a single man listening to this podcast, that their response, if their pregnant wife was snoring, would be to asphyxiate them into, you know, stopping snoring. If for no other reason, no matter how you feel about your wife, hopefully you're eager to meet your unborn. <laughs> And that's not a good way to do it. You know, so. I was in no way <laughs> jeopardizing anybody's life, but Except possibly my own. own. Yes, you are not a hunter. You are not a gatherer. And uh, but if, if you if, are not a compassionate husband to a pregnant boy. <laughs> this gets me thinking, and perhaps it's a subject of a longer podcast or a podcast segment some other time. But if we did have some weird apocalypse, as you put it, and probably not entirely unreasonable as we speak, um, what would be the three items in your go bag, the bag that you have packed, ready to flee in the event of some catastrophe? I mean, you, the kids are out of the house. 
you have the whatever documents are necessary for your for your continued existence. What do you bring with you? I mean, I, I, I can just, tell you the one thing I wouldn't. Me, my dead weight. I, I, I would not that. bring you. You would. I would cut you loose because here I can, you know, I can feed the four kids and you. But if if, if the kids are gone and I'm out there and I'm fending for my life, um, um, you're 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 done. You're out of the picture. <laughs> Maybe I take your glasses you take just to make your me? just to make your demise a little quicker and less painful. <laughs> More, more frank than I was hoping for. You know what? I have absolutely no idea. What would be in your go I don't bag? Know. I, 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 definitely my, my complete set of 1975 Topps baseball cards. <laughs> I'm not sure that I would have room for anything else after that. Uh, and, and alas, that, that's you in a nutshell. I would bring alas. Would and, it would be, and it wouldn't be you. No, it would be. I would bring, our, I would bring Jessie, our dog, because she could find me some voles. You're talking about dead weight. <laughs> she'd get some voles for us to, to chew on and... Uh, and that's it. So yeah, I'd bring Jesse and uh, nothing else. <laughs> shall we go to viewer mail? I think we shall go to viewer mail. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I'll start. This comes from Ralph Keys. Ralph writes to me, "Hello, Ms. Lobo." <laughs> you enjoy that? Many years ago, a coworker and I were walking over to a deli to get lunch. A gentleman who we both knew was relaxing on a lawn chair. A gentleman who we both knew was relaxing on a lawn chair in front of his apartment building, and his relaxation turned to sleep. As he slumped over in his chair, his enormous comb-over slumped with him. It was all we could do to not completely burst out laughing. The experience convinced me that the comb-over was not the way to go. The barber had it removed shortly thereafter. Oh, so this guy had his own comb-over? I don't know if he, he had just... his own comb-over or, or if the barber removed the comb-over of the sleeping gentleman. Either way, it was probably a good move. How great would that be? That, that... Let, me, let me just add, Ralph okay. also sends, sends us a picture of a General Electric brand Disposal. D-I-S-P-O-S-A-L-L, Disposal. Yes, but that doesn't mean that's what you call it. Just because it's the name brand, you it's it not like its a name. Kleenex where you, it, it, you know, people know that universally. He does concede that if you Google... Disposal with with only one L, you can also come up with with brands branded See, that so way. So there you go. But back to the comb over because Michael sent me a tweet, and he said, "I must admit that after 62 years, I cannot part with my part." Hashtag comb over. <laughs> hashtag can opener. So he, I just assume that people who have comb overs don't realize it. That they don't realize how it looks. They just send it over because they've been parting their hair that way for all for all these years. But Michael admits he has a comb over. He's not going to get rid of it because he likes his part. Good for but him. Good for him. Hashtag comb over. Hashtag can opener. I, I Yay, appreciate Michael. that. And that's, you know, it, it's like wearing a mullet where now it has become such a cultural phenomenon that if you're wearing it, you're wearing it proudly and you're wearing it without uh, irony. It's so just, what we need, much like in hockey and baseball where the athletes have taken to the mullet, I mean, maybe if there's some balding athletes that can take to the comb over, basketball would be great. You know, I can you see could, that happening. If you could get some guys running up and down, doing their sporting event with it, you know, in a can opener position, I think that's the way I to go. I can see that happening at some point. Uh, Lauren, by the way, while we were on the previous subject, sends an email, the header of which is Disposal, D I S P O S dash A L L. I have always called it a disposal. I thought everyone did. I thought everyone did too, Lauren. They don't. Most people call it a disposal. Ilana sent me a tweet saying that in Canada, disposals are called garburators. <laughs> I like that. A garburator. I was just taking a swig of water. And uh, you almost 
spat it across the room. So yes. Like a carburetor, but with but for garbage. Yeah, like garbage. A garburetor. So yay. Canada has good names for stuff. Like, what do they call hat? Is it a toque? Like, why don't we call yes. hats toques here? Like, they've got just some things that are, are, they make you smile. We've talked about this before. I still haven't gotten bouncy castles on air. I'm going to try to do my best in an upcoming game to get that on. If something, like, Gabby Williams had some great plays recently, and I could have said, that's bouncy castles. So I've got to remember that. But well, anyway, the, the, Canadians the, have just the good words. You know, toque, garburator. The innator suffix is such a great addition to any root of a word. It's the Dr. Doofenshmirtz on, on a, what's it called, uh, Dr. Doofenshmirtz, the oh, tri-state yeah. area, on Phineas and Ferb. Phineas and Ferb, yes. With his famous garbinator, uh, Caro, Caro, C-A-R-O, writes, one of my U.S. Air Force jobs was singing with field bands. We'd play retirement shows customized for honored guests. Here's to the balding, the balding eagles was one of the songs requested for a show. We also changed the lyrics to bare necessities for the person's last name. It was always weird to poke fun at people who outranked me that I didn't know for being bald. People that outranked me that I didn't know for being bald. Carol, believe me, strangers, it doesn't matter. Uh, people will openly mock you for being bald. It, it's uh, I speak from experience. Well, you know, talk about being in a band. We got another email. Again, this is ballandchainpod at gmail.com. Ballandchainpod at gmail.com. This is from Dorky Diva. Dorky Diva also sends us stuff on Twitter. But Dorky Diva was talking about playing in a band and... I think being a percussionist in a band and not like a rock band, I don't think. It seems like it's, you know, she says 45 to 50 musicians, you're dressed in your formal finery. And she said when you're playing in a band, especially in a band shell, that if any of the members of the band have gas, and of course many of them do, if not all of them, that it all gets funneled towards the back, towards where the percussionists are, and that people would always comment how how serious and concentrated they looked in the back. She said, but it was actually just because they were, you know, trying to hold it together. And it made that that makes me think of our fourth grader who mentioned that in school he too has a favorite spot to go to, doesn't he? When he has to uh, pass some gas, he goes back to the back corner of the room and in his classroom. And he mentioned that to one of his classmates, and his classmate responded to him, That's where I go too. So. It's, it's it's good to learn courtesy early on. Yes. Uh, Steve, I've been considering trying to learn an instrument. As with you, I never learned to play anything as a youngster, but marveled at my kids' abilities to learn slash play and always loved to listen to the practice. In addition to their school instruments, my three all took piano lessons, so I still have something to use. My intent was to start in retirement, but why be another Kevin Nealon? How do you find learning the piano as an adult? That is the degree of difficulty and the learning curve. I hate to say this, but I haven't found it that difficult. I, I thought it would be a lot harder than it was. Now, granted, I'm playing. You have a lesson tomorrow. tomorrow. I'm playing well, maybe, your head a little lamb. But maybe, um, maybe your coach needs to get a little tougher on you. No, 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 no. But that was from Andy. Andy, take it up now. Believe me, it's you'll be fine. You'll be playing. Saints go marching in and annoying your wife with it in a matter of in a matter of days. But speaking of bands, speaking of musical coaches, musical teachers, Matthew writes. Thanks for the info about Ruth's Chris Steakhouse because the, just the other day my wife and I were in the car and drove past the Princeton, New Jersey restaurant and got into a discussion about why they have such an awkward name. I have a thing, this is unrelated, I have a thing about those farmer insurance commercials with J.K. Simmons. J.K. Simmons, of course, played the driven, crazy drumming teacher 
in the movie music teacher music teacher in the, in the movie whiplash loved him Matthew, less of a fan of, of the uh, farmer insurance commercials with J.K. Simmons. Overall, I find them very annoying, which is tough because they play so often during the stuff that I watch, sporting events, and uh, they sponsor the Masterpiece Theater show Victoria. However, oh. I find the one with the red-hot mascot just hilarious. I could watch it endlessly. How uh, dare he? I love J.K. Simmons. I don't <laughs> how care. Da- no, how dare he? <laughs> I don't is. care if it's in a farmer's insurance commercial or what. I loved the movie Whiplash. I thought it was amazing. And I before long before the movie Whiplash, when he was when J.K. Simmons was playing in the Spider-Man movies, I was at the NBA store, and he and I were were doing an appearance there, an autograph signing or reading to kids or something like that. And that's when my first kind of got introduced to to my friend J.K. And do you call him J.K.? I don't call him anything because I've never I haven't seen him since. But I am a big fan of his, including in his farmers insurance commercials. So, well, just to give you an idea of Matthew's tastes, he he says I think the commercial is like the progressive commercial with iced tea, just genius. He also says, just to give you an idea of his uh, his taste, Masterpiece Theater's Victoria, the progressive ins- commercial with with iced tea. Uh, Rebecca and Steve, I love your podcast and look forward to the 45 minutes every week where I laugh and relax, just as Steve said to Rebecca, you're relaxed for 45 minutes a week in this podcast, referring to the 45 right. minutes a week in which you are laid back. Well, so I am laid back all the time. You just don't bring out the most most of the time. You're as you asphyxiate me, you're shocked that I might not be laid back. <laughs> As you're texting me while I'm on air at work to find out what kind of milk we drink and I don't respond right away, you're wondering why I might not be laid back. <laughs> I am as laid back as they come. Okay. Shall we do the housekeeping? The Gmail address is ballandchainpod at gmail.com. Twitter handle is ballandchainpod. And the Instagram handle is just ballandchain. So... um Follow us on all those places. Send us questions. We didn't get anybody emailing us this week asking us to settle a marital spat. We need more of those to see who is right and who is not right. And you were you were not on the road this week, so there were no taxi cab slash Uber confessions. But there will be next week because I'll be heading all the way across the country to uh, Eugene, Oregon. And so I expect some interesting Uber confessions, taxi cab confessions. We're going to have to wrap this up now and have Tom, Dick, and Harry play us out because we have to get this as quickly as we can to producer Denny with one N Gallagher, who will be producing this poolside from the Bahamas, he tells me. Gosh, I wonder how we're going to get it there. While we upload it, we have to bear in mind that he has... uh, spotty cell service and intermittent internet down there. So if there's anything wrong with the podcast, it's clearly Denny with one end's fault. And if, if Denny with one end with a paper umbrella and a coconut shell at poolside it doesn't make it a priority to produce this quickly, we won't have it up tomorrow. But, but if you're listening to this, you'll know he got the job done. And Tom with one T, Harry with one H, Dick with one D. Play us out. <laughs> Saying says no pain, no gain, and we found that to be fact. The road might twist and turn a bit, but we all arrive intact. Mr. Mom and Mrs. Dad having each other's back. Day by day, just to keep it sane. Who's the ball and who's the chain? It's hard to tell right here on Happiness Lane. Six of us and the family pad live in cuckoo nest. Daily grind puts your sanity to a daily test. 
Androgynous, ambiguous, what we give for a little rest Stay by day just to keep it sane Who's the ball and who's the chain It's hard to tell right here on Happiness Lane It's hard to tell right here on Happiness Lane It's hard to tell right here on Happiness Lane